our New Testament lesson and sermon text, Matthew chapter 16, verses 1 through 12. And the Pharisees and Sadducees came, and to test him, they asked him to show them a sign from heaven. He answered them, when it is evening, you say, it will be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, it will be stormy today, for the sky is red and threatening. For you know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of Jonah. So he left them and departed. When the disciples reached the other side, they had forgotten to bring any bread. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they began discussing it among themselves, saying, We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, O oh, you of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive? Do you not yet remember the five loaves for the five thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the four thousand? And how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware of the leaven of bread, but of the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. How many of you this day are really and truly concerned about false teaching? I don't mean that as a concern in theory, but as a real concern for your own spiritual well-being. Are you truly concerned about the reality of false teaching and false teachers? I think that it's fair to say that many of us are quite confident in our own ability to spot false teachers from a mile away and to recognize quickly their false teaching that we were, are somehow inoculated permanently against that leaven that Jesus warns us about this day. Beloved brothers and sisters, our text is not given to us as some mere history lesson. It is not. Matthew includes this because we as well need to understand that there is a true danger lurking in this fallen world. This is not some danger that I want us to uh, start going around like there's some boogeyman around every corner. No, not at all. But to have a realistic understanding that there is such thing as false teaching and there are such people as false teachers. This has been something that's been growing in the Gospel of Matthew. A certain theme. Yes, the main event has been Christ. 
And as he comes with his true teaching, for example, in those discourses we've been talking about, like the Sermon on the Mount, like his teaching about the threat of persecution, like those parables, that true teaching is coming, and he's been performing many signs and wonders to authenticate that true teaching. That's been there, and that's the main event. But all the meanwhile, in the background, there has been a growing opposition toward Jesus. We have seen the opponents. Primarily, they have been the Jewish leaders. The Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, but not just them, but also many of the Jewish laity. As we think about Christ's woes that he pronounced upon cities like Capernaum, and as he denounced his own hometown, Nazareth, more and more opposition is increasing. Opposition is rearing its ugly head. And it's soon, in just a few chapters, that leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees will become so pervasive that the crowd responds and requests for the crucifixion of Jesus Christ, the one who has been working all of these signs and wonders. Within our text, we should note that as the Pharisees and Sadducees approach Jesus, we have already learned that they are not sincere actors within this drama. They come and they put on a veneer of humility. Oh, Jesus, we're just not quite sure yet if you're really real. Could you please just show us some signs from heaven? Could you please just satisfy our wishes? We just want to honor God. So could you just show us some signs, please, that we might know if you really are sent from above. Give me a break. From chapter 8 through chapter 15, what has he done? Over and over again. Yet, they come and they want Jesus to begin to bow the knee to their wishes, to begin to operate on their terms. But no, Christ sets the terms. And he has already begun to turn judgment toward Israel. He's already pronounced words of judgment at the time of the parables. He has made his move toward the northernmost parts, and he will start to make a beeline for Jerusalem in the very next text. He is done showing signs. He has shown plenty. He is done teaching the crowds openly. He has done that sufficiently. And so now, Jesus tells them that he will give them only one more sign that is the sign of Jonah, to which we will return later in our sermon. But for now, we recognize the slowness of the disciples. They've seen all this. They've been with, with Jesus more than the Pharisees and Sadducees. They've heard this interaction 
between those leaders and Jesus. They're slow to understand. They haven't recognized the 5,000. They haven't recognized the truth of the 4,000. They're still worrying about earthly bread when they're walking next to the bread of life. They're still concerned with their provision when they're standing next to the Creator and Redeemer of all mankind. How slow to understand they're with the very one who is about to renew creation itself. You see, the leaven of the Pharisees was already affecting the disciples. They were not understanding. They were slow to meditate upon the words of Christ. They were quick to think about their stomachs. And they were given over to some of the tempting words conveyed by those Jewish leaders. Even they were susceptible to false teaching. And so, brothers and sisters, we too must beware. If those disciples who walked in the footsteps of Jesus, if those disciples who heard everything written in the Gospels and more, if those disciples who saw with their eyes all the signs and wonders performed by Christ, if they could be susceptible, well then, I assure you, so can you, so can, me, so can I. We begin by considering today the spread of false teaching. The spread of false teaching. We should see in verse 12 that this leaven of which Jesus is speaking is very clearly false teaching. Matthew brings that out for us very, very clearly. Now, I think that we should situate this concept of leaven within the broader theme that Matthew has been developing, which the Gospels all develop, really, that theme of the greater exodus. When you think about Christ coming as the Redeemer from slavery, Christ coming to bring about a greater exodus for the people of God, not just one from an earthly nation, but one from the grips of Satan, well, then when we hear that language of leaven, what should we be thinking about? That Passover, right? And the Feast of Unleavened Bread that followed it. That Feast of Redemption. And therefore, as we begin to think about this evil of leaven here, we begin to think about something that is somehow attached to spiritual slavery. And that is really what lies do. Correct? Spiritual lies, that great method of the serpent, it seeks to enslave. It seeks to capture. And so here, that is what's going on where there is this spread of lies occurring that seeks to capture mankind, hold it in its grips, 
that the redemption and freedom of Christ might then be thwarted. This is a very dangerous thing. The stakes are very, very high. And we should note in our text that there are two different angles from which this false teaching comes. It might seem like an insignificant detail, but it should really surprise us. As the Pharisees and the Sadducees come together with one united front to come and confront Jesus. This would be like Donald Trump and Joe Biden joining arms and coming with a united front to do anything. That will not happen. These two could not be further apart from one another. They were great enemies with each other, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And so they come at this problem, problem to them, of course, Jesus, and they want to address it together with a united front. Now those Pharisees, those were the staunch conservatives of the day. They wanted to double down on the mosaic ceremonies and the traditions of the elders. If only they could conserve everything and try harder, they would find success. The Sadducees were the progressives of the day. They weren't too bothered by the Greco-Roman occupation. In fact, they kind of liked it and the enlightenment that it brought. They didn't believe in silly things like a resurrection of the body. No! Just something spiritual, maybe. And so, these two came together because the threat was against both of their desires, both of their goals. They each wanted earthly glory. Christ stood in the way. And so they both attacked Jesus. Now, I think that this is a point where I just like to linger a little bit because I see something very analogous to this attack on the Christian church in our day. There is leaven coming from the conservative side and there is leaven coming from the progressive side. I think we often only notice one of those sources rather than both. There is leaven coming from the cultural traditionalists of our day. They look at what's happening in our world and they bring against it a counterculture message. They emphasize, you could say, the moral antithesis. That our world is corrupt and is going in a bad direction. I don't necessarily disagree with that. But they look at that and they want to emphasize that and they feed a posture of fear. And then what happens? They might be pointing out true things, but here's what ends up happening. We recognize that they might be on the right side of the culture war, but then come the ideas smuggled in behind. We begin to then excuse false teaching because they're with us against the cultural opponents. 
few years ago, there was a very good example of this. I'm not going to mention names. But there was a very prominent preacher within the broader Reformed world, you could call it, who was on the right side of a lot of moral things. He identified that young men were acting like boys and they needed to grow up. He identified a lot of the egalitarian streaks within our culture as being a danger to the church. He would call out sin with such brashness that he gained a following all across the world. But then, when certain doctrines started coming out, like his denial that the Son was eternally begotten of the Son, or of the Father, pardon me, that the Son was eternally begotten of the Father, he was given a pass. To deny that the Son is the only begotten of the Father, that is the very definition of heresy. But because he was on the right side of cultural things, we gave him a pass. Or many did. You see how that works. When the cultural conservatives are on the same side of the culture war as many of us might find ourselves... We begin to become allies with them, not critical of their teaching, and then it becomes a Trojan horse that comes into the Christian world and begins to upset it from the inside out. Not to mention many other skeletons that that particular minister had in his closet. This happens as well from the other side, of course. And this is dangerous to us as well. Because the progressive side wants to say, hey, we're the nice ones. We're not like those brash extremists like that particular minister I talked about a moment ago. We're not like that. He's mean. We're nice. We smile. He's a culture warrior, and we see some good things in the culture. So come and cozy up with us. And then... In comes their Trojan horse. All of the critical theory that is emboldening them, their critical race theory, their other kinds of dogmas that they're spreading through the culture, and then that makes an inroad. It comes from both sides. As we harbor the right-wing extremist, we make people in our church susceptible to the left-wing extremist. We need to be aware of both sources of leaven. Because what they do is they expo exploit felt needs and anxieties. The disciples were anxious over food. The Jewish populace was anxious over having their land back from the Romans. And so these two groups came in, one from the right, one from the left, exploits anxieties, and in the end, what happens? They crucify Jesus. May we not do such a thing, beloved. Our first point, the spread of false teaching. They come with their lies. They get a foothold through cultural endeavors. And then they spread false doctrines. 
Second, our need for vigilance. Our need for vigilance. We must be vigilant in all these things because Jesus, when He says an evil and adulterous generation in our text, He's not referring to one blip on the radar. He's not talking merely about that generation of Israelites, even though he was. They stood for something bigger. They represented fallen mankind. And so as he exposes the fact that these Pharisees and Sadducees were part of a wicked generation, but also feeding a wicked generation, we must see ourselves in the mirror as one who by nature likes the lies of the serpents and eats the forbidden fruits. As a people who is ready, apart from the grace of God, to hear those lies, to embrace those lies, and to follow after those lies. Note the twelve. The apostles. They were struggling. The same sin of the Jewish populace lurked in their hearts and it lurks in ours. We must be vigilant. For false teachers were not only successful in the first century, but they are successful in our day as well. Just a few months ago, the Ligonier study, the State of Theology, came out for 2022. And what it showed was really quite surprising, even for someone like me who pays attention to it every time it comes out. You see, in two years' time, since 2020, there was a 13% increase in American evangelicals, the Bible-believing ones, right? 13% increase among American evangelicals who don't believe Jesus is true God. 43% of self-described American evangelicals, 43%, do not believe Jesus is true God. Do you think that the leaven is spreading? you think that shows like The Chosen or commercial uh, movements like He Gets Us are not having an effect? Year after year, these things come out. Year after year, a different Christ than the one the Bible presents is being fed to the American culture. One who is not transcendent. One who does not offend. One who does not confront our cultural ideologies. Beloved, it is happening in our day. And we must be vigilant against it. Half of American evangelicals, half believe that God learns and then he adapts. That God changes. 
that he needs to be taught something. Half. I don't say these things so we become proud and arrogant, but to warn us. The leaven is spreading. It was not only spreading in the first century, but it spreads in our day. And we must be wise to it. You wouldn't be surprised as well if I told you that a third of evangelicals, only a third, believe in original sin. Only a third. Or that there's been a massive surge in the last two years toward the cultural dogmas of homosexuality and gender fluidity. It's tragic. But the leaven is spreading. Again, why? Because of the same sin that lurks in your heart and in my heart. We want earthly power. Whether it is the right-wing version or the progressive version, we want to latch onto something there to align ourselves and then we can easily become sitting ducks for whatever comes in through that Trojan horse. Let us be careful. Let us be circumspect. I'm not at all telling you, please hear me, I'm not at all telling you that we should become cultural pacifists. No, I'm not saying that. I'm saying we must be circumspect as we do it. We must be wise that those who might be, you could call them cultural allies, also are spreading false doctrines. The stakes are high, beloved. The crowds, remind yourselves, they heard these things and they turned against the true Jesus Christ. That is the danger that faces us. Our first point, the spread of false teaching. Our second, our need for vigilance. And third and finally, seek understanding. Seek understanding. This is the thing that Christ is imploring of his disciples to perceive to understand, to meditate, to reflect. There are many things that could be said here, of course. I'd like to encourage us with four things as we close and seek understanding. First, I would encourage us to have a sense of proportion. A sense of proportion as we think about culture and about Christ. If we have a sense of proportion, then we will minimize the risk of false doctrines infiltrating our lives and our church. So have a sense of proportion. What I mean is this. Here's some examples. That we always recognize that God's wrath is a far greater problem than things like a COVID pandemic and bodily disease. Far greater. God's wrath. And we affirm that, though, while still caring for the body. Okay? This sense of proportion. To say that my personal sin is a bigger concern for me than the problems of the culture, while still also recognizing that there are real 
cultural problems with that sense of proportion. Prioritize my own sin more than that of others while not being blind to others. See what I'm getting at here? Proportion. To recognize that Satan, sin, the world, and death are our chief enemies. Greater than any cultural enemy could be. While still recognizing again that there is true wickedness in the culture that is having a real impact upon ourselves and our neighbors. Okay? See the proportion I'm trying to get at here. We can affirm that Christ's kingdom is not the same thing as the United States of America. We can affirm that while also still loving and wanting to bless our country. It's not one or the other. It's ordering these things with a level of true proportionality. One more here. We need to affirm that the heart of Christianity is about eternal redemption while also affirming that the Christian faith has real impact upon the surrounding world. Okay? But the heart is still eternal redemption and the heavenly kingdom. If we have this sense of proportionality in considering Christ and culture, we will minimize the risk of those false doctrines infiltrating and capturing our hearts. So our first thing, a point of application as we seek understanding, have a sense of proportion. Second, I want to provide maybe a few safeguards against false teachers. As we think about false teachers in our day, I would suggest that perhaps the greatest danger is the fact that we Americans we really, really love celebrity. We're the country of Hollywood, right? We're the country that loves to see somebody standing up with strength and power. We say we don't like kings and stuff, but then we anoint cultural kings. Whether it's on the right of the aisle or on the left. And then we begin to look for figureheads to lead our movements. I'm of that guy. I'm of that guy. I'm of that gal. Or whatever it is. This happens within the church as well. I would encourage us to avoid that temptation to celebrate some living author or theologian in its place. One of the most helpful things in my life as a Christian was this. Where you just put those celebrity pastors and preachers, put them over here, and then take the creeds and confessions that are back here. Say, boom. How much better is that, right? How much more helpful is that? When you have documents that the church across the ages has looked at, has analyzed, has tested against Scripture, so much more helpful. Plus, documents don't have skeletons in their closet. 
That's one of the good things, too. And these documents are not going to be changing like many theologians can change. So on that pedestal where you've had a celebrity preacher or something, put the confessions there, put the creeds there, put a catechism there, never on the same level as Scripture, of course, but in terms of finding faithful instruction and a faithful summary. Don't rely on one person. Avoid that temptation. I'd also say, too, much better than having living authors that you really kind of celebrate, probably better to have dead authors. Why? We know they're skeletons. And we know what they wrote. And they're not going to come out with something next year that's crazy. But their whole corpus of writing can be analyzed and seen. And over the course of generations, for example, they can be tested against Scripture. For example, John Calvin's writings have been tested against Scripture far more or more, much more time than John Piper. Do you see what I mean? That's not to cast stones at John Piper, just to say, note the time, note the reflection, note that one is much safer in terms of what we conceive of. Within this same vein, just as we want to avoid celebrating celebrity pastors, we also say to avoid the celebration, or maybe you could say fantasizing about particular churches, or maybe even particular revivals, as if what God has given us in a local church is not enough. That our hearts begin to go somewhere else. Just like that husband who begins to fantasize for a different woman. And his heart becomes captured by that different woman. And he becomes discontent with his, the wife whom God has entrusted to him. Well, if we begin to look longingly at other churches and other um, places of spiritual experience, what happens? We begin to degrade what God has entrusted to us in all of its humility and in its lowliness. Because it's easy to look at these big churches and places that are far afield and only see what's on the outside, to see the glitz and the glamour, and not to understand that that place is full of sin as well. So, be mindful of that. In a world where we hear all about the latest and the greatest, people, churches, whatever, find contentment and give thanks for what God has entrusted to us. Prioritize your ordinary church family instead. So our second part in terms of seeking understanding, avoid the celebrity preacher Avoid fantasizing about those churches and revivals out there. Third, ensure that you treat Christ as your chief prophet and teacher. We affirm it with our lips, but do we do it in our lives? To treat him as our chief prophet and teacher. I fear that many of us can go a whole week without cracking the pages of Holy Scripture. I fear that many of us hear sermons and take no moments to reflect. 
I fear that many of us spend more time listening to the teaching of others via podcast or by reading the theological works of others than by hearing directly from Christ in the pages of Scripture. If we give him only the honor with our lips as our chief prophet and teacher, but not with our lives by actually digesting and reading Scripture itself and meditating upon it, thinking about it, if we do not do that, then we will be ripe for the harvest of false teaching. Recommit yourselves, brothers. I know that this is not January 1st, where we do the whole Bible in a year plan, right? You can still do it today. You can do it this week. You can make a mad dash to catch up. Or you can just read the Bible regularly. Let's be mindful of treating Christ as our chief prophet and teacher and not treat someone else like that. Fourth, and finally in this list, seek deep Understanding. Understanding. This is a big topic, but let me relay a few things to you that our council spoke about this past week at our recent council meeting. We were reflecting upon a, a DVD series that we're beginning together, and one of the things that was being taught was that there's been a massive shift within American society, within this generation of Christianity, where we've all of a sudden arrived at a point where Christianity has become this like Sunday morning only thing. As long as you go to that Sunday morning service, you dash out the door afterwards, you don't do anything else the rest of the week or the rest of the Lord's Day, you're good to go. You've imbibed that. That has not been the way our forefathers and foremothers have done things. The Lord's Day has been a day of deep reflection. Throughout the week has been a time of reading Scripture, of even gathering with the church to pray and sing with the church, even midweek. The ancient paths, the ancient rhythms are so lost to us because of the invention of the car and the suburb and being scattered around. That we don't see how impoverished we are in terms of our biblical understanding of things. So we must labor toward that. To labor to see ourselves get to grips with the full counsel of God. Not some cheap version of Christianity, but a deep meditative reflection upon the words of Scripture. To know the stories, to know their meaning. This is not something you cannot attain. Our ancestors did this. They understood because they gave their lives to it. We know so much in our day about our favorite hobby, about our favorite sports teams. You can ask me, I can tell you everything about the Ohio State Buckeyes football team. Not casting stones here. The point being, we have the ability to engage deeply with this text. Yet we want to excuse ourselves, do we not? We want to say, oh, that's just for the pastor. Or that's just for the elders. Or that's just for my husband. Or that's just for whomever. Beloved, let's engage deeply. These are the words of life. 
to this end, a few practical things within our church I would commend to you would be one, to prioritize the catechism service. That is a place to be taught doctrine. And as you are taught doctrine from Scripture, you're going to better be able to engage with sermons and readings here and throughout the week. Because we need that balanced diet of preaching through the books of the Bible and hearing doctrine and being reminded of how Scripture coalesces in the person and work of Christ. Attend fellowship group. It's a great way to do this. To gather just once a month for fellowship with your brothers and sisters. Again, to be taught to pray, to sing. To let these things rest deeply in our hearts. And very soon the elders are going to be starting a men's study. Likely on Saturday mornings. I would commend that to you men. To not be content with where you are in terms of your biblical knowledge. And even more importantly, biblical understanding. Don't be content. We are trying as a church to feed you, to teach you. Please avail yourself of those methods and means. Please spend time in your week reading Scripture. We must seek understanding. For if we are not, false teaching will come our way. The reward of these things is great. I don't want to just use this stick this Lord's Day. But I'd like to give you a delicious carrot as well. And that delicious carrot is this. That Christ has provided for us more than the signs we've considered thus far in the pages of Matthew's Gospel. And understanding leads us there. Understanding leads us to the place where the climactic sign occurred. Understanding leads us not to just more intellect, but it leads us to a person who is full of compassion. Deep understanding in our hearts leads us to Jesus Christ. That one who came for you to be cast into the waters of God's judgments that you might not be drowned there. To descend into the waves of God's wrath upon the cross, just like Jonah. So you do not need to fear the waters of God's judgment. They come to you instead as waters of cleansing. Understanding leads you to that Savior who's greater than Jonah, who cried out from the cross, and he was heard by his Father because he was obedient in this life. Because he offered himself up as that perfect sacrifice. Understanding leads you to his person, the one who loves you more than anyone in heaven or on earth. Spiritual understanding leads you to Christ. We do not seek understanding as an end in itself. We seek it because it leads us to the one who for three nights and three days was in the belly of the fish. Jesus, 
who went to the tomb, who has been raised from the dead, who now intercedes for you, who forgives you. Beloved, let us beware of false teaching and instead seek understanding because that brings us to the feet of Christ. Amen.